0: this is the quantum biology podcast where we break down the practical health applications of this emerging science starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us in this episode dr stephen hussey turns our ideas about heart health upside down and explains why the conventional wisdom we grew up with is mostly wrong that the heart isn't just a pump and how the new quantum biologic paradigm helps us understand what is truly important to preventing heart attacks and keeping our hearts healthy. And it's not what we've been told. You can also check out Dr. Hessey's book on this topic. The link is in the show notes. This is a really important episode, enjoy. All right, welcome Dr. Stephen Hesse. So excited to have you um, on the podcast. We had a great time listening to your presentation, deep dive on the quantum vascular system. It's absolutely incredible. So I just, to start off, um, let's just start with the heart. I think for most people we think of what we were all told all our lives, that the heart is a pump (laughs) and there are certain things to Mm -hmm. do to keep it healthy. And when I listen to you speak and the other um, heart specialists who've studied quantum biology, what I hear is, actually, it's the light that makes the heart work. Could you expand on that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I guess you know, in a sense of it, it is it is the light for sure, because it's the it's the structuring of water. Um, and so, you know, the number one, absorbed energy by water is is infrared light um which is why it's so important um you know to get all aspects of light and why you can think about like in a hospital setting how being under this blue light and this non-healing environment these things that interfere with the structure of water um would be the worst spot for someone to be who's in say like heart failure but but yeah so you know when you think about it and i think the first time I got exposure to this um, was I just, I I read a study that that was basically showed how inefficient the heart was. If you look at it as a pressure propulsion pump, which is a pump that sucks in water from somewhere um, like stagnant water from like a reservoir or something. um, And then forcefully pumps it somewhere else, like moves it using, using some sort of energy. Um, And that's just not what the heart does and like they they looked at it and they measured it like as far as like energy expenditure from heart cells and it was like 15 percent efficient if we looked at it that way um which in my mind you know whether you think about it as something that was created or something that evolved like that wouldn't be the best way to make something you know fifteen 15 efficiency um so we must be looking at it wrong um like you know saint georgie says you know if if nature answers intelligent questions intelligently. So if there's no answer, there's something wrong with the question. Um, so there must be something wrong with our view of of the heart. And so, yeah, it's it actually functions more like a hydraulic ram. Um, and so it's important to understand that because, well, I didn't know what a hydraulic ram was when I first came across that term. I had to go look it up and watch a YouTube video. Um, but the importance of that is that a hydraulic ram operates by flow going into the system. Um, so it, there's already blood flow, which is, if you look at, you know, the heart, like it's interesting that it's placed in the middle of the system. You know, it's between the arteries and the veins, it's between where this flow is happening already. So it makes sense to look at it like a hydraulic ram. And really it's two hydraulic rams kind of stuck together. Um, the right side and the left side make up those hydraulic rams. Um, and so a, a hydraulic ram is flow activated. So fluid of some sort has to be flowing into it for it to operate efficiently. And there's a few different differences from the hydraulic ram to the, um, to the heart, uh, which we'll talk about, but, um, but basically, so that led me to believe, okay, well then, you know, fluid has to be flowing into it, you know, and it's, so that must mean that the the heart is not creating the flow or at least not the main reason or, or the only reason or something like that. Um, And so, so then, you know, eventually I get down the line, I read something like uh, Gerald Pollack's work um, and, and many others about how, you know, water uh, can kind of propel itself if you put it in the right system. So if you put it in a system where there's a, a hydrophilic or a biological surface, we know that biological surfaces are hydrophilic um, and we put water, which the blood is about half water, um, you know, then, uh, then it will structure itself onto the lining of the artery um, kind of form like this gel-like phase, and that uh, rearranges the, uh, the charges a little bit so that the structured water is very electronegative and the space in the middle the lumen of the artery um, is very positive because of the hydrogen ions that are cleaved off of that. Uh, and it creates this battery that does work that creates fluid flow. Um, and you know, in Pollocks lab, they can put an energy into that system, which infrared light is the most popular one. Uh, into that system, and flow will continue in the same direction for as long as that energy is provided. Um, And so there we have an answer at least to the main way that fluid is flowing on its own. Um, And so so yeah, then so fluids flowing, that's one way that that's kind of what kind of gets the fluid flowing or or keeps the blood moving. Um, But then there are other things that
0: Before you go on to the other way, so I just want to recap because we have some yeah. newer listeners. So when you say um hydrophilic surface, you're talking about a surface mm-hmm. that the water is attracted to. Would that be
1: mm-hmm.
0: a fair way water to water
1: loving it? surface? Yeah. Rather than okay. like a hydrophobic one, which is like, you know, I guess the, the way to illustrate that is like a you know, if you see like a, um, a droplet of oil or something in water its hydrophobic. So it stays together. It doesn't blend very well. It stays away from that water and uh, to itself, whereas hydrophilic water loving, it goes, it wants to go to that surface, attracted to it. And that encourages it to do certain, you know, uh, make certain changes in the water and the structure of the water.
0: Okay, great. Continue. Thanks.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this battery that's created when that structure water forms is how water is, is or the blood um, is flowing. Um, but there are other things that also kind of keep it flowing as well. Um, one of them is, is um, paramagnetism. So there are things like the, the tissues in the body, um, you know, have kind of this magnetism due to the mitochondria. Um, they kind of create this magnetic attraction uh, and there are things in the blood like iron, like zeta potential on red blood cells, um, different things like that, that are attracted to magnets. So uh, it's no coincidence that the heart has the largest magnetic field of anything in the entire body, um, especially when it comes to the veins because um, you know, the veins need to, to be, the blood in the veins need to be drawn back to the heart through that magnetism. Um, so we have this, this you know, fourth phase water lining the arteries. We have this magnetic attraction in certain directions. And the people always ask me well what how does it leave the heart then if the heart's got this magnetic attraction tra- that's why we have a contracting ventricle it's one reason why we have a contracting ventricle because it kind of gives it this push away from the heart um, so that it can get away from that magnetic pull um and then once it gets into that circulation like i said the fluid is already flowing because of like once it's going in one direction it's always going to stay in that direction um so once it get back out of the circulation um, then um, it, uh, the fourth phase water in the lining of the arteries keeps it moving away from the heart. But then also to a point when it gets away from the heart, um, at a certain point, it'll start to be attracted to the magnetism of the tissues, which is much weaker magnetism than the heart, but still enough to to draw things toward it. So when it gets to a certain point, like maybe the um, smaller blood vessels and definitely the capillaries, it starts getting drawn toward the tissues because it's closer than the magnetic pull from the heart. Um, so, so so
0: I'm just going to check back in for a second. So when we have our sort of out of date notion of the heart as a pump and the pump does everything, what I'm hearing you say is that there is a pumping mechanism, but it's kind of like just a little springboard to get over that hump of getting the flow to continue away from the magnetism of the heart. It's not the entire action.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it's one reason the heart contracts. The other reason is that it it vortexes blood, you know, it spirals the blood, which is another way that you can energize water so that when it gets next to a hydrophilic surface, it structures itself. Um, so there are multiple. So how did why those things to work think-
0: together—the vortexing and the magnetic flow that you were just talking about?
1: Well, they're the uh, two. The vortexing is just a—it's a—it's a way that so vortexing in the presence of oxygen, which. The blood is always oxygenated even when it's coming from the veins like there's still oxygen present it's less so than when it's after it's been to the lungs in the arterial side but there's still oxygen present so when you when you vortex or spiral or just swish around really uh water like when i think of like at a river when there's rapids you know that's that's energizing water um that white water you see is energizing water the same kind of thing there's a mechanism in the body which is a vortexing heart so if you look at the muscles of the heart uh, or the muscle really, because it's one big long muscle that's wrapped up on itself that forms these different chambers. Um, when it contracts, it contracts in a spiral like motion. Um, and, and so that's, you know, vortexing. And so vortexing in the presence of oxygen is one way that they've seen that it energizes water. Um, and so that's the main role um, of, of the heart, I think, is to vortex blood. Um, so in a way, it is kind of responsible for the motion of blood, but just not in the way, not in the forceful pumping that we think of. Because if you look at it, you know, biomechanically, um, it's impossible for a heart the size of ours to pump blood throughout the entire body. Um, And it's just, there's no way it can happen. You know, the physics of it just don't add up. Um, But yeah, so it vortexes it so that energizes it so that when it gets to the hydrophilic surface, their biological surface anywhere in the body, Um, it can structure itself, which is then creating the flow. And then the magnetism is just what keeps thing going, things going in the right direction. Um, And and so, and also um, like concentration gradients of nutrients like oxygen, especially, Um, it's gonna be lower in the tissues if the tissues are using up oxygen. So especially when it gets into the capillaries, the blood is drawn by concentration gradient from blood vessels into tissues. Um, because you know the the oxygen is higher in the blood and the arteries um, going into the tissues, um, so all these different things kind of you know keeping blood going in the right direction, um, and then the concentration gradient um, when we exercise is what drives the um, increase in blood flow um, because the tissues need more oxygen when we're exercising or exerting ourselves, and so that drives uh, more flow of blood in the heart, increasing contractions or increasing beating. It's just trying to keep up with the increase in flow. Like people, I mean, it'd be easy to say, Oh, the increase in heartbeat is what's driving more, you know, quick, quickly or quicker blood flow. But in reality, the blood flow quickens because of the increase in concentration gradient. And then the heart has to keep up with that. So it starts beating faster, mm-hmm. contracting faster. Um, and they've shown so it's that the other when, way
0: around the hardest doesn't right. pump faster to speed up the blood. The blood starts to flow faster, so the increased oxygen, right. and then the heart has to keep up with it
1: to, yeah. to do its job shown, of
0: vortexing and moving it through.
1: Yeah, and they've actually shown that um, on really, really high exertion, that the the valves of the heart almost just stay open, and it's, the blood's just moving through, which is why you can't do that very long because it's not vortexing at that point, um, but the blood's moving so fast. That the heart really can't keep up with it, so it's almost like the valves are just open and they're just allowing blood to flow through because the tissue demand is so great at that point. Um, so, what would be some
0: examples of that would put a heart in that state? Like very, very intense exercise. Could it also be intense stress? Like, and and does that lead to problems if you force your heart to stay like that for a long period of time?
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so maybe maybe prolonged. Intense stress. Yeah. Like a, like in a momentary acute stress where you you react to it and then you ideally go back to homeostasis. Wouldn't necessarily do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one, like, I guess, I guess like sprinting or, you know, overexerting yourself for a long period of time. So I think of endurance athletes, which I'm not a huge fan of endurance sports in general, um, you know, for different reasons, but, um, but yeah, that would be a case, you know, where if you're running yeah. that hard, that long, that, yeah you're not you're interfering with um flow at that point because you're not creating vortex. And there there are other way or other places in the um like moving through the heart that blood gets vortexed but if it's not contracting and the blood's moving through so fast that it can't get a hold of it and spiral it you know then that's going to create flow issues which is why at some point you can't do that type of exercise anymore your body just kind of shuts down because it's not getting the the, the concentration graded demand for nutrition, you know, it's it's not cre- being created because the um the blood flow is suffering because it's not able to contract and, or not able to um uh structure itself onto the lining of the artery once it gets out there because it's not as energized as it should be. Um so so yeah there's there's a certain subset of people that that can do that, but most of us can't. You know, we're not that right. we're not we don't have those genetics, right? Um, and we call those people freaks of nature, these, these people that can these top athletes, you know, they can do these types of things, um, better than, than some of us. Um, so, yeah. So, and then the so, last sorry, thing just is zeta- to yeah. follow
0: up. So would that be like, um, there's a question in the chat and if I didn't mention this, we've got a live audience here today. Uh, there's a question in the chat about hit trading, like where you do, mm-hmm. you do something intense for a short period of time. Is that yeah. more in line with what our bodies are able to handle? And also yes. when you do hit the point where you can't do it anymore, what does that look like? Are you t- would it just be sort of like chronic fatigue or a heart attack? Or are you just like, what does your body do to show you like no more?
1: Yeah, I mean, it literally shut down. I mean, that's why we see people collapse at the end of marathons. Um, you know, literally just can't do anymore because their tissues for so long haven't been able to get enough, you know, nutrients um, because we've we've decreased that ability to structure the water and create the flow um that's that's created by the tissue demand right so they literally wear themselves out and that's a very inflammatory very uh autonomic nervous system imbalancing type thing to do uh, not that i'm saying that no one should ever do those things because there's other reasons that people may want to do those things like you know emotional health maybe or that's their job like they make a lot of money doing that but like for the average person you don't need to do that type of exercise to be okay. healthy for sure. Uh, and that's my right. point is with those types of things. And with hit training, yeah, it's 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 more of a, uh, it's, it's more of a tell your body you're not good enough for a short period of time so that it rebuilds stronger, it gets better. Like, right. okay, we didn't have enough healthy mitochondria to support that activity. Let's break down the old ones and build new ones and be healthy, right? You know, like that kind of right. thing, you know, our, our muscles weren't strong enough to do that. Let's, let's change that because that's just that. I it's kind of it sounds kind of negative, but you're telling your body it's not good enough so that it gets better, right? Yeah. Um, and but that's a short-term thing. You don't want to do that long term because I think the benefits wear out after a while, you know? Right.
0: Yeah, because that's one thing that I've really um learned that really sh- shifted my mindset towards exercise since I've been studying quantum biology and working with people who understand this perspective on health, is that almost everyone I've interviewed, um, who was like very, had a very intense athletic routine has has chilled it out once they understand how their body really works. And they've, they mm-hmm. still do the intensity, but they do it much less frequently. Like they do it maybe twice a week instead of five times a week. Um, and I really yeah. learned the the benefits of a restorative approach. And because it's so, um, you know, along with the heart is a pump. Like I think one of the things that's so deeply ingrained in us when it comes to exercise is like, you got to go hard, you got to go hard. Mm. Um, and I personally made the mistake of trying to do that when, when I was suffering from chronic fatigue, not understanding anything. And it mm. obviously made it way, way worse. So yeah. what I'm and, hearing and you say that... is that intensity is helpful, but you really need to moderate it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And 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 you, you only need enough to, to tell your body to be stronger. I mean, just like, even when I lift weights, um, Like I'm doing one set to complete failure and then I go on to the next exercise, you know, like, cause I don't need to tell my body anymore. It's hard to go to complete failure and you have to do it safely, you know, because you got weight. Um, but, um, but it's, that's all your body really needs. You don't need any more than that. So these short amounts of times. And so I don't like the term cardio, um, because I don't think that we need to, uh, strengthen our hearts, and to effectively create flow, you know, because that's not how blood flow happens. Um, So we don't need to, we don't need to strengthen or we don't need to train our hearts to be able to go for 15 miles. You know, we need to, we need to train our bodies uh, to um, optimize, I guess, nutrient and energy production, which is what those short bursts of things do. And it makes sense evolutionary to me because, um, you know, if I was, in the wild, I think the only time I'd sprint for something is if I was going to eat, you know. Um, and so that's that's what right. you train your body to do. Um, so, so yeah. And then the the last aspect I think of flow, of blood flow is the Zeta potential, um, which is, you know, water doesn't just structure itself onto the lining of an artery um and other places throughout the body, but also onto uh the elements of the blood, especially red blood cells, but also lipoproteins, which is topic i like to talk about with cholesterol and things um but that keeps things kind of evenly spaced but still attracted to each other creates this electrostatic potential um where like it's almost like a situation where like charges are attracted um because they're attracted to the um the opposite charge in between them but then they get too close they're kind of they kind of move away from each other you know so they kind of keep this good spacing between them which is really important for The health and nutrient delivery and things like that of blood um but it also keeps things linked up together and moving so you can think about it like like train cars when they're linked together and you create momentum with the engine um if you just cut the engine it's going to keep going for a long time because they're all linked together and that momentum keeps things going so um when they're all linked together like that it's kind of this cohesiveness um which is trigger word there cohesive but um but like it, it keeps everything moving together um so that that momentum keeps it going the right direction and flowing efficiently all this kind of stuff keeps blood moving um and flow is probably the number one thing i think for health it's, it's keeping you know not just flow of, of um fluid in the body but also flow of electrons flow of like body movement kind of flow but things like that like flow is really really important and lots of issues that happen cardiovascularly happen when we get lack of flow. And so if we don't even understand like from a Western medical perspective how flow actually happens, that's why they're having such a trouble treating these issues in flow, which is you know, plaque buildup, clotting, different things like that.
0: Right. Okay, so if we are now looking at the heart from a very different paradigm from sort of the traditional view that we would get if we went to a regular cardiologist and we're looking at it in terms of flow of blood flow of electrons, um, water, light magnetism. All of these are the key drivers of heart health, according to the quantum biologic perspective. So from Hmm. a, from a practical perspective, if the old paradigm was, you know, don't eat bacon and go running every day (laughs) to have a healthy heart, uh, and we now know that the cardio the idea behind the cardio all the time was to strengthen the muscle, but the muscle is actually not the key driver, it's the flow. So if we're looking at it from this paradigm, what would be the new uh, sort of practical suggestions for people to keep their heart health optimized?
1: Yeah, um, well, I'll take it back a step first and then and then go into those those practical applications, but like okay if you so the old paradigm is is like you said don't eat bacon and do cardio you know that kind of thing um and the reason that they don't eat bacon is because of cholesterol right and cholesterol and saturated fat been blamed for heart disease <laughs> um and i i like to talk about how you know a, cholesterol is not a cause of heart disease. There's no one's really identified that some mechanism where elevated levels of cholesterol just evilly say, oh, I'm gonna go damage the lining of the artery uh, and do that. And if you look at it from a quantum perspective, there's, you know, there's Zeta potential, there's this protective barrier of fourth phase water on the lining of the arteries. And if those things are intact, um, you know, cholesterol is never gonna get into the lining of the artery. Um, but it doesn't do that anyways. It's, it's clotting tissue, which is stagnant flow, uh, which you know leads to inflammation and things just hanging out too long in an area. That when they when and when they do that, clotting tends to happen more. And that's what atherosclerosis is. It's clotting tissue. There's very little cholesterol present when you analyze atherosclerosis. It's just like if you cut your skin and the scab forms. Like it's kind of that similar type tissue um, trying to stop inflammation and things from happening. And so, then, if we look at it from that perspective, instead of, you know, over analyzing lipids, which, you know, like the keto community and the carnivore community are very much into lipids, and they wanna, they wanna analyze lipids um, to decide whether or not they're good or bad for us. But when you look at it from a quantum perspective, it's just like it doesn't even matter. Stop analyzing lipids, um, because you're just, you just, you know, <laughs> Einstein, you know, like it takes a new level of thinking, right? You can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking. So like, we think that cholesterol is the problem because of this, we can't prove that it's not the problem by looking at cholesterol again. Um, they wanna analyze the small dense particles and the um, you know, the oxidized LDL and all that stuff. And that's that's fine. Um, we can gain some insight from that. But when we look at it from a quantum perspective, it's way more important to increase flow, increase, you know, the ability of fourth phase water to um, um, structure itself onto biological surfaces, um, whether it's the lining of the artery or the elements of the blood, it makes way more sense to focus on electron flow to keep your mitochondria functional in your heart because that's what creates that huge magnetic field uh, so the blood can continue to flow. Um, and so that's that becomes the recipe for heart health is is optimizing your physiology based on this biophysics rather than over-analyzing this, this one aspect of the body, this biochemical type thing, this lipoprotein situation. Um, and I say overanalyzing because it's, it's all they talk about and they argue about it all the time. Um, and so, yeah, then the, the take home becomes, how do we increase flow? Like how do we, how do we do that? And so that is getting energy from places other than food, um, you know, getting energy in the form of infrared light, which is, you know, one of the best ways to energize water so that it does do these things when it gets next to these biological surfaces. Um, so, you know, especially the sunrise and sunsets so where we're getting more infrared, um, but just sunlight throughout the day, you know, soaking up electrons from the earth so that you're not so dependent on um, food. Um, but, um, you know, you know, also contacting the, the earth's magnetic field, which is, most compatible with ours like all these things are what's driving um all this this flow and, and they show it too like there's studies on grounding that show that it increases data potential um dramatically so it, it leads to that proper spacing um and so because if you, the zeta is gone and we get that reload formation with these stacked coin like red blood cells on each other you can imagine that would interfere with flow something that's individual and able to kind of you know, mold around the 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 turns in the arteries and things like that versus some long chain that's like of, of red blood cells it's not going to fit through things as well. And it's going to create issues uh, where things don't flow as well. And that can lead to clotting, which is why the low formation is is a sign of inflammation and, and potentially clotting. So, um, so yeah, it becomes about those aspects of, of, you know, putting your body back in an environment that creates flow, proper flow, rather than, biochemistry or whatever, but, you know, it's that way because, you know, we all know Western medicine has, has a drug for, for the biochemistry. So that's what it's focused on because it's, it's a system that, that, um, it's a capitalist system that wants to make money, just like anything else. But um, when you, when you look at it from a quantum perspective, it, it makes all that irrelevant. Right.
0: And from a quantum perspective, the, the practical strategies, do not require a prescription it's like walking around on the earth barefoot for a few minutes spending time outside ideally doing your exercise outside um eating the bacon
1: mm-hmm.
0: maybe not yeah everyday, i mean anyway. i didn't <laughs> mention that you know, the dha
1: you know from from the um the animal fats um primarily seafood but even from um you know healthy um land animals i should say um, getting that dha is what it allows you to use the light to to get, to create electrons, to create healthy mitochondria in the heart, that creates the magnetism that creates the flow. Like, it's just like this, this big you know, kind of chain of, of things that we have to connect together to, to see how that works. Um, and, you know, in that paradigm where it's like, you know, exercise, so your heart's good at pumping blood, that doesn't make sense. And, and it may actually interfere with that. And then don't eat the saturated fat, don't eat the THA, which is again, not, uh, not allowing for other, you know, uh, ways of flow. And it just, it's totally backwards and it's why it's not working. It's why heart disease rates continue to rise to, despite the the latest procedures and the latest drugs and all these different times. Cause it's totally backwards.
0: Right. And we're, we're narrowing down on one tiny variable, which is like, mm. take this drug. Whereas yeah. what you're explaining is an entire system, like where, where we put our bodies in the world versus just one, exogenous.
1: Right. Pill. Yeah. I remember I worked, I, I worked at a, a chiropractic clinic more or less across the street from a medical school and a research institute. And I had a lot of PhD patients coming in and, and I would always ask them like, what are you what are you studying? You know, and it was always like, well, I'm looking at this one biochemical pathway trying to change this or change that so that we can make a drug for it and we can change that biochemical pathway. And so that's a very linear way of looking at things. Like, it's just like, you know, this step is to this step to this step. When in reality, there's this coherence where the body is communicating in a million different ways, which is why it's a like a it's hard to even define like time in that sense. Because time, we look at it as this thing moving forward, like one from the other. When in reality, there's multiple things happening all at the same time. It's the same kind of thing with the body; like it's all happening all at the same time. And um, and so it's just a it just doesn't work, you know. And so that's what's hard to grasp because even like even in chiropractic school and biochemistry. I mean, that's what I'm learning. I'm learning these stepwise reactions. You think that's how it works. And, you know, but you can't change one little reaction without having an effect on the entire system or interfering with the coherence of the entire system. Um, And so that's why I like to look at it that way um, because, you know, we're a very complex biological ecosystem. And to think that we can understand it from, from one aspect of the body at one snapshot in time. I tell that people all the time, like that blood work that you're, that you're freaking out about is one snapshot in time for one tissue in the body um and you're looking at one aspect of that tissue in the body like that's completely short-sighted you know to think that you have any understanding of what's actually going on in your body from moment to moment you know um and and i, I like that argument because people are so focused on ldl or whatever um but it, we have to back up and, and realize that you just have to kind of put your body in the right environment Based on physiology, based on you know physics, really, Um, and trusted it's going to do the right thing. Um, Because if you keep trying to overanalyze this and then manipulate that one thing, then that's just not a path to health. It's just, I mean, it's so short-sighted. It just, it doesn't even make sense. And people, once they get that, they're just like, oh. I, I kind right. of understand, and they stop freaking out. They're like, they kind of put the blood work. Down. I see it all the time on my on my consults. They they put the blood work down <laughs> over here, and they say, "Okay, so what do I do?" You know, and yeah, it's just it's a super useful you know thing to get them to be aware of and see.
0: Yes, and that is again another gift I think of this approach. Right, is it brings such a sense of relief. I think especially when we're dealing with chronic illness, which so many people are. Um, it it becomes like very onerous to track health. And then you hear a podcast and someone says this and about this supplement and you hear this about that. And it's like a continuous kind of chase. Whereas the quantum biologic perspective is so holistic and simple that it, I really do see it as you just described with your patients, like bringing this sense of like relief. And um, and then I think once you get into it, even enjoyment of, of Mm-hmm. A path to health, right? Like it's it can mm-hmm. be even fun. So yeah. I'm really curious. I want to sort of shift gears a little bit into the kind of mindset that is required to wrap our heads around something like this. Like when you were describing the vascular system from the traditional way, you said something like, you know, like the physics of it just didn't add up. So when I was first trying to understand this paradigm, um, and I look at things very conceptually, I'm not like a detailed science person. So I was trying to understand, like how did this paradigm come to be and why is everyone ignoring it <laughs> in the traditional world? So I came across the work of Thomas Kuhn, who talks about um, so, you know, the structure of scientific revolution is his book, right? And he talks about a paradigm shift happens when the current framework, so many anomalies build up that don't fit inside the current framework of understanding that at a certain point, you can't ignore them anymore. So you're trying, so all of this evidence that you're seeing about how the heart works as a flow and not as a pump, there's like a little piece here and a little piece there. And at a certain point, there are so many anomalies that don't fit the accepted framework that you, you do become open enough to reach for a new one. Mm. So I'm curious for you personally, how you became someone who is able to do that because it's, it can feel very risky. I'm not even a practitioner. It was just, I was just shifting my own personal belief and it felt a little risky Mm. to align myself with something that most people in the world are like, what are you talking about? You're wrong and crazy. Right? So Mm. Could you talk about the, the intellectual curiosity and the emotional resilience that sort of built up in you over the course of your life to allow you to be someone who's able to do this?
1: Uh, yeah. And you know, I, I don't even know exactly at like a certain point in time where I felt like I had this epiphany or something like that. It's just, I've always been very curious. Um, i think my dad gave me that curiosity my dad's always very scientific and and just always wanted me to ask questions even like when i'm doing science projects in elementary school like i would do enough to get the project done and and do it and dad was like what about this what about that and i'm just like dad i'm done with the project and he was was always just like asking me questions like i wonder why that is so he taught me to be that way and then um and then it was my own you know personal health journey of that i just at, at some point i guess i just found it interesting that I was able to try on error pretty much to control aspects of my health that, you know, I was never told by a doctor that I could do. Um, and so, cause I, you know, was always, I had a really good relationship with my pediatric endocrinologist cause I had to go to him every three to six months or so as a type one diabetic. And, um, he was really a great guy and he helped me understand more or less his, at least his understanding of what was going on in my body. But he never told me a lot of the things that I found out later on. Um, he never told me that if I could change my diet and I'd give myself less insulin and, and things like that. So I just found it interesting. Um, and so I'd always wanted to be like a medical doctor. Um, but then I thought to myself, like, well, you know I'm learning all this stuff that he didn't even know. Maybe I don't want to be a medical doctor. Um, and And I was like,, yeah, hey, it's kind of hard schooling to be a medical I don't want to do that." Um, but, you know I decided to be going to chiropractic, but it just gave me this, I guess, no preconceived notions about anything. There was no like this because you, you you kind of grow up or I grew up thinking, oh, the doctors know everything. And then you think, well, well, if they don't, then who does? <laughs> it's like, well, nobody knows everything. But it just it kind of, you know like what else is out there? It gave me that question, like, what else is out there? So then I just started reading and reading, and it turned out I like to read which I didn't know, and I just, but I've never stopped reading, and it just, and and reading things in the context of, with no preconceived notions, like, there is no way that things are, um, so that just allowed me to entertain all the different ideas, all the crazy different ideas that are out there, I didn't care what it was, how crazy it sounded, I just wanted to read it, you know, because even if it made no sense, or I was like, yeah, oh, that can't be true, I'd read something five years later, to would be like, ah, oh, that was true, you right. know, and so it's just always this kind of compound thing. and and you know, I'm only 36 years old. Um, so I feel like there's a lot more learning to be done, you know. I, I, I can only read so much at to, at 36, but um, but yeah, it was just, I guess I didn't feel like what I was being told by adults, uh, or people older, supposedly wiser than me, was matching up with what I was seeing in my life. And that happened very early on, which I'm glad that it did. Um, because for lots of people it doesn't. Um, and so once you have that, that uh I guess doubt in you know the authority or whatever, what's supposed to be the authority, even if it wasn't like authority, authority, like government, whatever, it was just the authority of you know, someone older than me. They're supposed to be smarter mm-hmm. and wiser. Like once you, once you figure that out, then you just realize, well, maybe they're not maybe that's not the answer. So I'm going to go look for the answer. Um, and fortunate for me, I had, you know, the means to go looking for the, the answer. I, you know, um, I had the resources available to me and, and always have, which, you know, some people don't, but so I'm grateful for that. And, and now it's just, you know, I'm learning more and more each, like each every day, like, you know, even like the stuff that you guys call quantum, I didn't even know that was called quantum. I was just like, this is this cool stuff that I'm learning about, you know? <laughs> um, and And, and whatever, until like maybe a couple of years ago, I'd never really kind of applied it in that, in that way or heard it in that term. So so yeah, I, I don't know. There was no like one point or anything. It was just kind of, I don't know, how my life kind of turned out and and the curiosity that I would think was instilled in me at a very young age.
0: Yeah. Well, that was a real gift. Because, mm-hmm. you know, gift. yeah, I think too, just about, you know, you're talking about people sort of doubling down on, on the analysis of one's very specific thing and it's like, I find in health journeys, I see people find something that really helps them, mm. whether it's a diet or modality or something, and they sort of lock onto it as as the answer, mm. um, maybe form a bit of an identity around it. And then it's like just doubling down and doubling down and doubling down versus what I see in your journey um, and I'm starting to see also in like a lot of other people, different influencers, like, um, Sarah Kleiner, you know, or it's like, okay, this was really helpful and got me so far, but what's next? Like what else is out there and opening mm. up to the next step, um, as opposed to just sort of drilling down and down and down on the same thing.
1: For sure. I see it all the time, you know, and it's a huge problem. I mean, influencers and things like they're you know they're incredibly um useful for gathering information from you know but yes they do and this is i think it suffers from the same kind of paradigm that's happening within western medicine as you find some kind of solution and that solution helped you or worked for a certain amount of people and then your business your livelihood becomes reliant on that solution or that idea and so then it's it's very hard, especially if it becomes lucrative for you, to to go away from that idea. And some of them do, you know. And I I, I um, you know I'm proud of them for that. And I you know um, I think that that's a good mood for them. They they go away from it or whatever. But lots of them don't. And then it becomes you know you get the vegan influencers, you get the carnivore influencers that stick to these dogmas, and then people who you know are just trying to get healthy get really confused. Because this person's saying that, this person's saying this, and it's just really, really hard for them to determine, you know, what's going on. And what they don't realize is that it's the same kind of thing happening within Western medicine. It's just like, oh, the pills are the answer because that's how we make our money. You know, carnivore diet is the answer. That's how we make our money. Vegan diet is the answer. That's how we make our money. You know, this it just it's really gets sucked in. And so, yeah, I've I've tried to not be dogmatic about things, um, and not by some wisdom of my own or anything like that, just because been curious that's like oh yeah well this whole different set of things says something different i'm going to go explore this and see how it fits in with this or that or makes this relevant or makes this more relevant whatever um just because of curiosity not because of you know wanting financial gain or or yeah attention or whatever you know
0: yes and yeah and at a certain point dogma ceases to be effective. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, what makes it dogma, like even for, you know, even if the dogma is sunrise, sunrise, or, you know, like it could be anything, mm. even though obviously being out in the sunrise, is hugely beneficial if yeah, we get dogmatic about things. It kind of slows down, yeah. the, slows down the progress. Um, and so that brings me to, to something that um, you and Sarah Klein are actually chatting about on her podcast, evolving wellness. Um, and it, that is, the ability um, for us as individuals to sort of connect to our experienced reality on a, that we are experiencing through our senses versus, uh, you know, as you were saying before, like what the number on a, on a lab mm-hmm. says or what a certain dogma is telling us. It's, could you talk about how, um, and then I'm gonna go to questions from our, our audience. Did you talk about how you see that in terms of a a day to day practice and a different sort of way of thinking about our health?
1: Mhm um, yeah, so <laughs> we, we talk about like the the biophysics and the biochemistry and all that stuff, and it's all super fun. Um, you know, but there's this aspect of I don't even know say how to say it but like i guess your emotional state your your experience your relationship with your surrounding environment um at a spiritual level maybe i don't know mm-hmm. um so and how and how that in turn drives the biochemistry or the biophysics or the whatever um so it's just a huge aspect of of uh health and in life, I guess, that we kind of, it's kind of hard to think about sometimes because it makes people, you know, have to focus on parts of their life. Maybe they don't want to focus on, uh, which is hard to do. It's hard to confront those things sometimes. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so you know, we have senses and we say we have five senses, but there's, there's more than that. Um, You know, sensing our environment. Is this a safe or threatening environment? Um, And that's pretty much, I think what it kind of boils down to is what, It's why spirituality, I think, was invented. It was helping us deal with this world that we can't comprehend. Um, It it gave us reasons why the sun rises. It gave us reasons why thunderstorms happen. Like, that was like the old lore, I guess. People had to come up with this spirituality to to put their mind at ease about those things they couldn't explain, you know? And it's the same today, I feel like. Um, People use spirituality to help them deal with the things that they can't find a reason for why they happened in their life or something like that, or give them perspective on things. But anyways, the reason I came to this is because I was so interested in the heart, and I think the heart is what is interpreting our emotional state um, and telling our brain what emotional state we're in. That's why we say things like, I love you with all my heart, and I gave it all my heart. You know, we don't say I love you with all my kidney or whatever, you know, <laughs> even though maybe the kidney detects some of that stuff too, but the heart seems to have this emotional connection for us um and uh, and you know it seems when our emotional state is incoherent, the heart seems to be what suffers the most um as far as function, um whether that be metabolic changes, whether it be um you know the decreased magnitude of the heart, the electromagnetism that that really influences the entire coherence of the body, um because the because the heart has that big electric field and a big magnetic field um it's it's one of the. I believe I can't. I may be wrong on this, but I think it's the only organ that affects every other cell, you know, at a quantum level uh, in the body um, because of how big that field is. And um, and so our emotional state is incredibly important for creating this coherence, and um, so that the entire system can function as a whole. It's like it's like it's kind of like, I guess it's like kind of that steady beat, you know that that. Is keeping the system going forward. However, a healthy heart is not quite a steady beat. Um, it's this variability, um, and people ask me that all the time. They're just like, "Oh, my heart rate is this," and I'm like, "Well, your heart rate variability is supposed to be not steady." And they're just like, "What do you mean? Like, doesn't that mean it's chaotic?" And then it's, and it's like, "No, it's it's actually measuring your ability to to handle stresses. Like, it's if it's if it's just you know steady state all the time." you know, then you're, you're stuck in this one mode and you can't really adapt to other modes. And that's not how life works. Life is up and down all the time. So the variability in your heartbeat is what shows the health of your stress response and how healthily you can get from, you know, a non-stress state to a stress state and back to a non-stress state. Can you handle that? Because, because health to me is the ability to adapt different situations whether that's adapting to a different fuel source like carbs versus fats, or whether it's adapting to a a stress response, whether it's adapting to different brain waves, like you've got to be able to go back and forth easily to different states. That's what health is. And, and so the, the emotional aspect of that is, is measured by no coincidence, I think through heart rate variability, I mean, measured through the heart. And so, you know, we have to pay attention to, this aspect. And like, you know, people say it like has mental health and everything. And that's, that's the big part of it, but it's, it's unresolved past traumas. It's, it's all these different things that can influence our emotional state, which interfere with the coherence. And I've struggled with this personally, Um, you know, trying to increase my heart rate variability and trying everything that I can to do it and nothing's working. And so I had to find um, (laughs) some different ways, some ways that, you know, um, I would never thought that it would do that, you know, and things that, that can affect that. And so, but it's just amazing when you look at all the different aspects of your physiology and the, the, the signals your body's getting that can either increase or decrease coherence of this heart rate variability of the signals your heart is sending to the rest of the body. Because it's not just, it's, it's why I like, you know, the quantum aspect of things is because your mind can tell you a lot of things you know, like I'm walking down the street and I hear a car horn and my mind's like, ah, that's not a threat. Right. But your body, that's not a natural sound. Um, and so it has, it has a stressful response to it. It's the same as not knowing when the sun rises and sunsets every day or not knowing where you are on the planet. Like if you ever woken up and you didn't know where you are for a second. You know, like you're you're stressed out, right? Like it's you don't know if it's Thursday or Friday. You don't know what season it is. You just forget, it. and it's a stressful situation. And then after ten seconds, your mind kind of, oh yeah, it's this day, it's this season, it's whatever. And I got to do this today. But your body, like your mind, can think that, but your your body needs those signals too to know what time it is, what day it is, all those different things. Otherwise, it's very stressed. It doesn't know how to act. It doesn't know how to what signals to give the body, and that's reflected in our heart because um, that affects the emotional state um, of being stressed or non-stressed. And so it's this incredibly um, dynamic, but also very influential aspect of physiology. Um, is this this psychology or the spirituality or whatever of the body and how it affects our physiology. And I'm still exploring it, um, but especially for the heart. I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 I think it's the foundation of it. You can talk about all the other stuff as far as the, um, exercise and what diet is best and all these different things, but like that, that I think without that, all the other things are, aren't as effective or aren't as important. I don't know if that answered the question.
0: (laughs) Yes, no. And I think it makes perfect sense because what we keep coming back to is a, a holistic, um, a holistic approach. So yeah, we can talk about what type of exercise is good and what type of food to eat is good. But yes, if we don't have a le- an emotional intelligence, if we don't have some mastery mm-hmm. over our mind, if we haven't, if we don't sort of heal traumas that are sitting in the body in that, probably in the latticework of that structured water somewhere. Right. And mm-hmm. anyone who's had a healing experience, you know, I've, I've personally had them and, you know, I've, had the privilege of being in the presence of other people, right? Like, it's almost like, like a melting, right? And and like a, like a clearing happens. Um, mm-hmm. And there's like, tears and um, like all of this emotion comes out. And then the feeling afterward is almost like you've had like an emotional shower or a spiritual shower there, you know, you, you feel lighter and cleaner. And it's like, that kind of, to me, uh, cleansing experience is definitely strengthening the heart. Like, I can't imagine how it isn't in the same way that, you know, detoxing
1: mm-hmm. other,
0: other things that are clogging it up would.
1: Yeah. And you get, I mean, you look at like Peter Levine's work and, and Stephen Porges and things like that, like these traumas get imprinted. I I say, people say stored and I like the word store, but I like imprinted too, because it, it depends on um, what you were doing during, at the time of that trauma, like what, what part of your body were you moving? It may have gotten imprinted right there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why some people have frozen shoulder and they can't figure out why they didn't do an injury or anything like that. It's just something happened, you know, but unfortunately because the heart is processing a lot of our emotions and relating to the body, it ends up being a spot where traumas are stored. Um, or imprinted um, because it's it's relaying the information that's why there's things like Takatsuko cardiomyopathy you know where people like literally heartbroken syndrome where you develop heart failure because you're heartbroken um, it's it's a real thing you know even western medicine agrees that it happens um, so th- there's reasons for that um, and so yeah it's in you know finding someone that can help you release that trauma because it's not just sitting there and talking to someone about it. I mean, that can help and, and having support and things like that, but it's also processing where in the body, it may have been printed and stored. store, um, yeah. and, and working that out.
0: Yes. So body work, sound healing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All of the things, therapy, everything again, yeah. back to the, to the holistic. Yeah.
1: yeah I, I think, you know, Peter Levine and his somatic experiencing has probably been the most impactful to me um, just because it's a kind of approach that uh, helps the therapist and the and the client identify where it's stored and allowing mm-hmm. the body to process it. Because lots of times when you have a trauma, if you're not allowed to process it, it gets stored in the body um, yeah. and s- somewhere, you know, so, you know, that going into shock, that shaking or whatever is the body processing. And, and what does Western medicine do with shock? They try and suppress it uh, and stop it, you know, which ends up storing, you know, the trauma, not allowing the body to get rid of it. Um, which happens for a lot of people. Sometimes there's no shock response, Um, but um, yeah.
0: Right. And so it's an ongoing journey Mm -hmm. and an an evolving one. Um, (laughs) So I really appreciate you sharing yours. And then we're going to go into our um, practitioner community. We have people here today listening in live from the quantum biology collective. So I just want to um, check in with their questions and. uh, So Hannah asked, could you explain the mechanism of how endurance athletes may develop long-term cardiac sequelae such as, you know, what I'm going to have you read that question. There's a lot of uh, (laughs) technical words in there. I'm not interested in saying, You see it in the chat if you scroll up a little.
1: Oh, scroll up, yeah. It's from Hannah. Um, oh, um, yeah. Uh, so, well, so there is there is a thing as like um, um, you know, enlargement of a heart and endurance athlete, and they'll say things like. Oh, it's because the heart's more effective at pumping blood. Uh, it's stronger, you know, because it's having to do it more often. When in reality, I talk about studies in the book where um, it's actually um, the heart's more effective at stopping the flow of blood because there's a certain point where like that's the other purpose of the heart is that it's there to maintain balance between the arterial and venous sides. Because if I was to go for a run and there was so much tissue demand for oxygen that um uh, my, all the blood would, would flow over to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse and we would die because then blood couldn't get back to the heart. Um, but since the heart's there, it's maintaining the pressure between the two systems. So it slows the flow of blood during exertion so that it can maintain adequate fluid pressure between the two systems. Um, and so if if there's an endurance athlete that has an enlarged heart, um, not like necessarily pathologically like heart failure, but just like enlarged muscle of the heart, um, it's actually more effective at stopping the flow of blood because they're using it to do that all the time because they're always exerting themselves. Um, the study was done in soccer players. Um, most of the ones that I, I talked about in the book were done in soccer players. Um, but then there's also, there's lots of evidence that um, endurance exercise um, will lead to increased scarring of the heart. Um, and so, scarring of the heart like scar tissue formation in the heart um you know we can talk about what scar tissue does and how it interferes with communication um from a from a collagen perspective um but also it interferes with you know how much of a contraction you can create that will vortex blood that will you know then once the blood goes out into the system you know structure itself on lining of the artery and create flow so that damage is what leads to the development of like heart failure. Um, And that's why people, um, I've had multiple clients who had chemotherapy and ended up with um, heart tissue damage from chemotherapy um, that are now having issues with heart failure. Um, And so um, that damage can be a lot of, it can be caused by a lot of different things. And then um, like with AFib, um, you know, AFib is something we can get predisposed to you know, maybe because our mother wasn't um, exposed to the right uh, environment when we were in the womb um, because flow is incredibly important for the proper development of um, the structure of the heart itself but also the conduction system of the heart and so if we're getting a poor conduction system like AFib, uh, or an issue with the conduction system then that could be something that we're predisposed to that happened uh, in development but it could also be an issue with autonomic nervous system dysfunction, like you're stuck in this stress state, um, and your body's thinking that it has to increase um, um, heart rate, or it has to, um, or it's getting it's confused about which signal to give to the heart, and so it's creating these these fluctuations and and the proper um, beating or contraction of the heart. Um, so so there's that. I mean, there's also evidence that magnesium deficiency you know is effective for afib but that could be because it's just a muscle contraction issue um but also a nerve conduction issue um so so yeah i mean as far as you know treatment for endurance athletes that may be struggling with these heart issues um it helps to understand what the, the function of the heart actually is um because if we understand that then we can help them so like patients i've had with um like heart failure, whether that was from, you know, long-term endurance stuff or damage to the heart muscle or, or heart attack, you know, that damaged heart muscle, it's understanding that infrared light is probably the most useful thing they could do because that's, what's going to create the flow. And so that, that takes um, pressure off of the heart to, you know, contract and actually, you know, get blood moving out of it. It's, it's playing to the the strengths of the body, which is um, keeping blood, Flowing another way, like all these different aspects we talk about—the paramagnetism, the zeta potential—like so with the grounding and everything. Those things are what's going to help that person um, function optimally um, as far as flow. And that's how we—that's how we take pressure off the heart and stop, um, uh, you know, stop uh, these unfortunate things that have happened to them. This damage to the heart tissue or this um, improper development of the of the conduction system um, from affecting them as much as they should by putting the heart in an environment that, you know, allows it to function like it should be. So hopefully that answered the question.
0: Yes, indeed. So Amanda's asking about the differences between if there, or if there are between women's and men's heart function, um, especially because heart attacks can present differently in men and women.
1: Um, I don't know about like specific function, like as far as like, you know, contracting chambers of the heart um, or anything. I do know that there are differences seen. Like, you know, it's interesting um, that, you know, heart attacks are more common, or at least they were for a long time, more common in men until women get to a certain age, until we get like, we basically hit menopause. Um, and, you know, you can theorize as to why a lot of that stuff is. I, I don't know exactly, but one interesting idea is that you know, a menstrual cycle has actually been shown to increase parasympathetic activity. It helps create balance in that autonomic nervous system. And so it's almost as if that was this thing that was helping women out um until they hit menopause and then it stops and they don't get that anymore. And now they're they the their rates tend to go up um potentially. Um, but um as far as heart attacks presenting differently, you know, I don't know. I think um I, I don't know as far as like why they would present differently. Um, I know that you can there's there's lots of different ways you can get a heart attack you know you can get a heart attack where there is an acute blockage like like mine was where just an acute clot formed out of nowhere I mean there was no atherosclerosis really um it's just a clot formed um you could get um you could get a really severe imbalance in your emotional state and then having an acute stress that that drives this shift in metabolism, uh, in the heart, um, which, uh, which creates issues with, as far as flow of blood in and out of heart tissue, which leads to hypoxic tissue, which leads to death. Um, you can get, uh, you can get that, you know, that gradual stenosis where, which in my opinion, never causes a heart attack. Um, but a break off of that gradual stenosis could potentially do that. Um, although there's evidence that even that doesn't happen very often. Um, so it just depends, I mean, on what type of heart Sorry attack- Sorry to interrupt. If that's not
0: what's causing the heart attack, then what is?
1: What, the stenosis?
0: Yeah. If it's not the yeah, stenosis. So,
1: yeah, this kind of a long explanation, but um, <laughs> so like, so there's plenty of evidence that, so if you look at Giorgio Buraldi's work, he, he did these plastic cast studies where he filled in the the um, the arterial system of the heart with a plastic, um, like a neoprene or a latex solution, and then allowed it to harden, and then he dissolved away all the tissue around it with hydrochloric acid. And he was left with this perfect structure of the arterial system of of the heart, which is kind of like what you see in like body world exhibits and things like that. They do that with fish and things like that. Um, he developed that technique. And he found that anywhere that there was a 70% of more stenosis, there was always a vast network of collaterals around it that fully bypassed the stenosis um you know and fully compensated the area with blood um 100% of cases um and so i've been told by cardiologists that some people have collaterals some people don't but viraltis research found that in like in all the hearts that he autopsied like thousands throughout his career that every single one um uh, exhibited this so it's why we see that bypass surgeries don't prevent heart attacks because the body already did it. Um, it's why we see that elective stent procedures don't per, don't uh, prevent heart attacks because the body already created flow around it. We don't need to open up the artery; there's already enough flow, um, and they can form very fast, like within four days. Um, some evidence shows, uh, and so
0: so. And what's forming is is like an alternative route for the flow right. to take if there's a problem right. with the main highway.
1: Yeah. Like any, like anywhere from broadly said, like on average, 14 to 33 different vessels form around it. Um, yeah.
0: So the body Uh, itself creates a compensating system when the main system is for whatever reason, not functioning properly.
1: Right. And these, these, these collateral arteries are small enough that they don't really show up on an angiogram. What does show up is that if you, if you have someone with a hundred percent blockage or 90% blockage, you start putting the contrast up here and the contrast shows up down here before it even gets to the blockage. Because the collateral arteries bring it around. Wow. Right. So And then is um, the
0: is the doctor or the technician going, Oh my God, how are you even walking around? You have a 99% blockage, but it's because yeah, of I mean, this compensating artery. Right, system. exactly. I mean, there's okay. there's
1: evidence of people who go in and they have a Andrew or a um uh heart cath and angiogram done and they say, Oh, you've got eighty percent blockage of this artery, you've got ninety percent blockage of this artery, and then the guy goes and runs a marathon. Like it's just, if you had 10% of your blood to a certain area of the heart, there's no way you're running a marathon unless you had some other way. But again, that's why the long-term research on bypass, bypass, heart bypasses don't show that they prevent heart attacks because those stenosis, these are not causing heart attacks and the body's already created a bypass. It's just that it's so small. You can't see it on the angiogram, all those little arteries, they don't show up. Um, You can't really see the contrast coming through them. They're just, they're small, but there's just a lot of them uh and so and so um so the the cardiologist i'm looking at the angio may not even see that and unless you really slow down the angiogram you're not going to see the contrast come from here to here even if you did you'd be like i don't know what that is i mean they know about collaterals they're not stupid um but they some of them straight up tell me some people have them some people don't and i'm just like well explain these things then you know so anyways what does cause Heart attacks is clotting, uh, you know, it's what happened to me, it's stagnant flow, um, you know, and so stress significantly increases clotting factors in the blood, um, literally it's, I think it's the, the number one, like acute stress, it's the number one thing that increases clotting factors. So if you're already in a state where you're inflamed and you know, you're whatever, you, you're not, there's no zeta potential, you know, protecting things, you've got these low formations, you've got just, um, uh, poor flow because you've got um, lack of structural water in the arteries and then you go through an acute stress and increase the clotting factors, a clot can happen. And if the clot happens to be big enough that it blocks an artery um, right then and there before the body can break it down because it will try and break it down, then yeah, you will get blockage. Now, the reason that it happens in the heart more often than other tissues, which it does happen in other tissues, you can get deep vein thrombosis, you can get kidney infarcts, you can get kind of, kind of stuff. Um, the reason it happens in The heart more is because there's more pressure in those arteries because not only are the arteries able to contract, but there's also a contracting and moving heart, which creates a lot of pressure. And the left anterior descending artery, which is where we see the vast majority, 95% of heart attacks is under the, the artery under the most pressure in the entire body. And so when we get that situation where we have this increase in clotting tissue and there's all this pressure that just increases the likelihood that a clot would form just a random clot form. that's what happened to me um you know i was i've been in a stressful situation for a long time i'm predisposed as a type 1 diabetic and then a very acute stress happened um and then you know 36 hours later i had a heart attack while i was still dealing with that stress um that that thing because it wasn't just that it was a stressful thing it was that the inability of my family not to do anything about it for this person and so I spent 24 hours trying to figure out what I could do and I couldn't mm-hmm. mitigate the situation. And then woke up Tuesday morning and had a heart attack. Um, and there are other things I think involved too. Like, you know, I wasn't doing the sauna as much. I wasn't, uh, I was consumed with work at this point and I was somewhat socially isolated. I was, um, I was oxalate dumping, I think at the time. Um, and, and, and then I had means. this stress, um, my body was pushing out oxalates because I had been on this very low oxalate diet for a long time. And it got to the point where it was um, pushing them out too aggressively. Kind of like if we mobilize heavy metals before we're excreting properly, or if our liver's not doing well, and we try and mobilize heavy metals, that can be a problem. Um, It can create a lot of inflammation and damage to the body. And so uh, similar with, with oxalate dumping, you can try and push those things out too quick. Um, And I think it was kind of this perfect storm that happened and, Um, but it also said, Hey, you know, get get yourself in check, like do, do the things that you know, you should be doing and that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, so that's what causes the heart attack. So it could be either that acute clotting. Um, and there's some evidence that if you do get atherosclerosis and you get the stenosis of an artery, that a piece of it can break off Mm -hmm. and that can cause the, the body to form a clot right there really quickly. But there's also a lot of evidence that that happens all the time and people don't have heart attacks when it happens. Um, so, you know, I am not convinced on that. It's, I think heart attacks are more acute clots when they form big enough to block an artery and then the imbalance in the autonomic nervous system where it forces, um, you know, it forces metabolic changes in the heart tissue forces it to burn more glucose than it wants to, which creates this, Build up of lactic acid and hydrogen ions very acutely in a very short amount of time, which creates swelling in the heart tissue. And when there's swelling in the heart tissue, blood can't get to it anymore because the pressure is more coming out because of the swelling. And that creates this very stagnant hypoxic area of heart tissue that dies. You get necrosis. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you how many people have approached me and said, I had a heart attack and there was no blockage anywhere. They couldn't find anything. Um, and that's what's going on. It's this, it's a situation that we can get to, that is triggered by an acute stress. Um,
0: okay. so, so it's like if, are we, if we are and, right, we're living our day-to-day yeah. lives sort of right at the line of what our body can handle. Mm. With a yeah. you know, work stress, poor diet, poor light environment, all you know, all of these things layering on Wi-Fi, five G, all the things layered on mm. top of each other. So we're living right at the line of what our body can handle, and then you put a trigger on that, and it it crosses the line and our body can no longer handle it and it manifests as a heart attack,
1: which is why, which is why the emotional spiritual heart rate variability aspect of everything is so important because that's what mitigates that's if that system is healthy, it's what allows us to get through that acute stress and that not happen. Right. Right. Um, you know, because it allows us to get get through that stress process it, and then the body returns to homeostasis back to that, out of that stress response, which if we stay in that stress response, um and we can't get out of it because our body's just not trained well enough to turn on the parasympathetic mm-hmm. and balance it out then then we stay stuck in that and then we're just more likely to not be able to handle that acute stress you know there's a reason like um you know we have this our vagus nerve is split it's got two pathways we're in like older evolved animals it's it's one singular pathway like reptiles um and there are some reptiles that are highly more highly evolved reptiles that have a some semblance of a dual pathway, but that's because they were evolving slowly more to mammals, right? Um, but in reptiles, they literally—they have a very slow metabolism. They're cold-blooded, right? So they can literally shut down organ systems and not die. Um, they can play dead, so to speak. And for whatever reason, that was evolutionarily advantageous. And so that's—you get where I'm. You can get where I'm going with organ shutdown, right? So then in order to become mammals, in order to, for mammals to evolve, they had to evolve this system where um, you could have a stress response and not shut down organs. Um, You know, mammals are warm-blooded, they're very active, they're very fast, you know, they move really fast, um, create a lot more energy, and we needed a system that, you know, because we couldn't afford to shut down an organ because we move so fast and we have this high metabolism. And so um, we needed a system, this dual system, that could allow us to have a stress response and also break it. Um, like, you know, a car break, a break um, so that it wouldn't go into this full-blown organ shutdown or play dead shutdown because that would be death for a mammal. And so that's why we've developed this two-phase vagus nerve or the motor nucleus and the nucleus ambiguous. And if those two are operating... Functionally, then that, that's great. But I don't think evolution was accounting for the fact that we would store traumas and we would be under artificial light and we would be in out of contact with the earth and we would have all these stressful things happening to us. So we, it, evolution couldn't account for this vast change or this very quick change in way of life that has led to this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system um, that is this stress state that can trigger these acute things.
0: Yes. And then we think, well, I don't know. I wasn't, I was just like living my life. wasn't doing anything, not realizing that we've layered Mm -hmm. on all of these stressors that our systems don't know how to handle.
1: Yeah. Well, Uh, all that stuff is perceived as normal. Just in our
0: normal modern life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All of it's perceived as normal. Like drinking Coke is normal. You know, (laughs) being, having LED lights is completely normal. You know, like that's just accepted, socially accepted when reality it's not normal. Um, and it's only been very recently that those things have changed.
0: Yeah. And so we would, we could add to our list of heart attack prevention. I know some, some people are don't like the word meditation, but I, I got to it by, um, someone called it, you know, just learning how to trigger the relaxation response, right? Like just learning how to Mm. put ourselves into a state of relaxation on purpose.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Oh my goodness. Stephen, thank you so much this was incredible um i just want to end on one thing uh, there was a technical question about infrared light you brought it up a bunch of times but we didn't talk specifically about sources of infrared light could you just super very quickly sort of give us a rundown on what that looks like
1: yeah um yes you know, the natural you know uh, source of infrared light is the sun uh what is it 40 Some percent of the light is infrared, especially, you know, more infrareds coming in, sunrise and sunset. Um, So that would be the the natural source, which is why we have a use for it, I would say. Um, But, you know, you've been getting some infrared, you know, and and just any type of sunlight. However, we have all these things that are counteracting that as far as, you know, the bad electromagnetic fields, the bad light, different things that are interfering with um, infrared light's ability to structure water. So it's very useful to have more of a therapeutic dose of it which is why i like infrared sauna um i mean sauna in general just like steam saunas are useful you know heating your body is useful um creating phase transitions and things like that but infrared i think it's better for detox it's obviously having an effect on the water in our bodies um, a big effect um so infrared sauna i think is is um i don't understand why there's not infrared sauna in every cardiac rehab center in the world, but there should be, um, but, um, but you guys got to make sure that your sauna is not giving you too much EMF. Um, and that I, I like it. I want it to be the closest to the 3000 nanometer wavelength as possible. Um, which some companies will tell you some companies won't, um, the closest I found, and I haven't asked all of them by any means, um, uh, is the one I use the relaxing thread sauna. So, um, closest to that, that wavelength doesn't mean there aren't others that are maybe even closer or are pretty close to. Um, but I, but I like that one. Um, and so, yeah, so infrared sauna, I think is the main right. other source rather than natural light. Right. So.
0: Okay. So outside in the sun and, uh, infrared sauna a few times a week, keep our, mm-hmm. yeah. keep ourselves hydrated. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Um, this was really spectacular and interesting and appreciate you being here to share yeah, your for wisdom and knowledge with us. Thanks, Stephen. This has been the Quantum Biology Collective podcast. To find a practitioner who practices from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely take a look at the Applied Quantum Biology Certification, a six-week study of the science of the new human health paradigm and its practical application with your patients and clients. We also love to feature graduates of the program on this very podcast. Until next time, the QBC.